Well, good evening. It's good to be home. Yeah, good to be home. We appreciate your prayers for us. <clears throat> we had a marvelous trip. Had a uh, great one-day Bible conference with a lot of people from our old church and old ministry. I think we had 70, 75 people show up, uh, which is pretty amazing in Australia to gather that many people around just on a weekend. Um, just had a wonderful time with them and uh, absolutely marvelous time with kids and grandkids. And uh, I got sick at the grandkids' house, the first set of grandkids. They were all sick and whatever they had I got, which I still have. Uh, still kind of uh, congested in the chest and so forth, but that's just all part of uh, mixing with grandkids, I guess. I've got uh, one sheet here for you. Uh, we got in late Wednesday night. I think we got back home around midnight. And uh, Aaron's down visiting from Montana, so we sit up, sat up and talked to him till 3 in the morning. And then last night we went to bed. We were real good. We went to bed about 10 o'clock. And Nan and I were both just laying there looking at the ceiling, could not sleep to save our lives. The last time I looked at the clock, it was about 4.15 this morning. Finally, somewhere along there, I fell asleep. So we're both a little bit on the ragged side. So you need to pray for divine intervention and power and so on and so forth. But we're very, very happy to be here with you. Did we have enough papers, enough sheets? Uh, this is just a real short uh, comparison or parallel that we're going to look at tonight. You remember in our last study, we did an overview or kind of a quick run through the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 10. You'll remember that I told you that Hebrews chapter 10 is really the, the key of the whole book. Uh, it's, it's really the, the cornerstone, if you will. <clears throat> of the whole book. And we're going to actually see how Hebrews chapter 10 relates to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> and so I'll get into that here uh, just momentarily. I thought that we could go through this whole thing tonight, uh, but as I was putting this together this morning, I realized that there's no way we're going to be able to cover everything tonight, so we'll probably pick up next week as well. Um, but if you will, let's start by opening our Bibles to Romans chapter 8, and then we'll, uh, you want to put a marker or a finger in Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> We're going to be doing a little jumping back and forth so that you can see how these two passages connect together. And before we get into our study, let's just once again go before the throne of grace and let's ask God to prepare our souls and equip our hearts, open our ears, and give us a hunger for His Word and a willingness to surrender to the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit as He breaks for us the bread of life. So let's pray together. Father, what a wonderful, marvelous thing it is for us to gather together in this home. <coughs> we thank you, Father, that uh, 
You have guarded and protected and kept us all during the time that we were apart. Uh, some of us staying still, some of us covering many, many miles. And yet here we are once again as a brotherhood, as a family, as uh, those who are united in Christ. We just thank you again, Father, for BJ opening her home to us and for each and every one who uh, comes together to hear your word. We thank you, Father, for the ladies that work hard to prepare the meal before we study. Uh, we pray that you'll bless each and every one of them for their service to us. And now as we open your word, may God the Holy Spirit take control of the time that we have together. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would deliver us from all distraction. We know that Satan hates the teaching of the word more than anything else on this earth. He'll do anything to distract, disrupt, discourage, bring despair, whatever. And so our prayer is that the might and the power and the grace and the mercy of God the Holy Spirit will be with us tonight, that he will sharpen our eyes, quicken our ears, soften our hearts, and give us a real hunger to not only hear the truth, but to implement the truth that we're about to study into our lives that we might fulfill the marvelous role that you have given us to play. You know, so many times, Father, we forget that we're writing our own story right now. We read the story of David. We read the story of men like Samson, uh, women like Sarah and Rachel, uh, Rahab. Uh, Father, as we read those stories, we think how marvelous, marvelous it is the way you have used your people and yet, you're writing our story as well, and one day the books are going to be opened and our story is going to be told. Mm -hmm. And because of your grace to us, we have, as we live on this earth, as we wake up every morning, the opportunity to write our own story. Help us to write it well. Help us to live our lives from the end, looking back and asking ourselves the question, what do I want my story to be? I pray that for each and every one of us, it will honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ when we stand in his presence. And to this end, we commit our time now this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If Hebrews chapter 10 is the key, kind of the hinge, uh, all of you, I think, are aware that I believe the Apostle Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Aaron and I were just talking about this before class. If he isn't, we're missing a book of the Bible. Because Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that Paul had written a letter to the Jewish Christians that Peter was writing to. And he calls that letter that Paul wrote to them scripture, which means that it had to be a part of the inspired text. If Hebrews is not that book, then that book's been lost. And we know that God cannot lose his word. The word of God lives and abides forever. So to me, that's the most convincing argument. Uh, it doesn't convince everyone, it convinces me. Uh, but at any rate, one of the things we find about the Apostle Paul is that he likes to, and I think this is probably a normal uh, process of the Spirit illuminating a teacher. Uh, I can just picture Paul as he's writing Scripture and the Spirit of God is just pouring into his soul uh, the thoughts, the truths, and the doctrines that he's recording and it's like a light goes on, and he just quickly writes, oh man, what a great idea this is, and he writes it down, and it's very brief. And then he'll come back later, 
And you see him taking that little seed thought that God gave him and expanding it. And I think all of us do this as teachers. And when we look, for example, at the book of Colossians, we see Colossians presenting the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of the body. And the great emphasis there is on the greatness and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you see it there in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following. He ends with the idea that in all things he should have preeminence. And later he comes along and he writes the book of Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, you have the same truths, but they're presented from a different perspective. Now they're being presented from the perspective of the church as the body of Christ. Colossians, he's the head. Ephesians, we are his body. And yet, some of the passages are almost identical of the, th the truths that he's writing. Ephesians, however, expands it even more. We see the same thing when we look at the book of Galatians. Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. It's the great proclamation of freedom from the law. Paul shows us there the difference between grace and law, faith and works, and yet it's a very small book. Then we come to the book of Romans. We have those same ideas picked up, put into a little bit different context, a little bit different format, but really running all the way through the book. And of course, the key verse in Galatians is the same as the key verse in Romans, and that is, the just shall live by faith. Well, interestingly, that's also the key verse of the book of Hebrews. We'll hit it later on at the end of Hebrews chapter 10. Another indicator to me that this book was written by Paul. Paul took two statements from the Old Testament to develop and formulate his entire theological perspective. And that was the principle from Genesis 15 and verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. And he picks up on that idea, of course, in Romans chapter 4. It establishes the truth of our salvation being by grace through faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. And then the second is the one that we find in these three books, and that is the just shall live by faith. And yet it's very interesting that Paul emphasizes a different aspect of that statement, which comes from Habakkuk. I'll be doing a conference on Habakkuk in Pennsylvania coming up, and actually I used Habakkuk in the conference that we did uh, there in Australia, uh, when God says to Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. So when we see how Paul uses it in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, in the book of Romans, we're dealing with the issue of the just. Who are the justified? And Paul develops that idea for us in the book of Romans. Then we get to Galatians, and the question is, how shall the just live? The just shall live. That's the focus of the book of Galatians. And then we come to Hebrews, and of course, we're about to get into Hebrews chapter 11, and everybody knows that Hebrews 11 is what? It's the faith chapter, right. And how many times does he say by faith, by faith, by faith, over and over again? But a lot of times we miss the fact that he introduces that idea of by faith at the end of chapter 10 when he says the just shall live by faith. Well, it would be uh, very logical for us to say, well, what do you mean by faith? Can you illustrate it? Uh, there's a young lady that was... Uh, a uh, student at Annapolis Naval Academy, very brilliant uh, young woman. And uh, whenever we would have a conference back there and she would come to the conference and I would open it up for questions, 
she would always say, she would pick out one of the points of doctrine that I had mentioned and she'd say, what does that look like? In other words, explain to me what that looks like in day-to-day -day life. Give me a picture, an illustration, an example so that I can get an idea of, of what that looks like. In the book of Hebrews, you could imagine the people saying, the just shall live by faith. Well, what does that look like? And so the author says, okay, here comes Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to show you using the examples of Old Testament saints what it means, what it looks like to live by faith. So I present all that to you to give you the understanding that in Romans 8 verses 1 through 4, we have the seed thoughts of Hebrews chapter 10. And this is what I want us to see tonight. So if you look with me, and we understand that Romans 8 is, of course, the central passage in the book of Romans. Uh, if you don't love Romans chapter 8, something's wrong with you. You need your head examined. Uh, anytime you feel discouraged, depressed, downcast, read Romans chapter 8 and believe it. Read it and accept it. Read it and stand firm on it because it is one of the most victorious passages that you will find anywhere in the Bible. But we're going to take the first four verses, which introduce all the truths that come later in the eighth chapter, and we're going to see the seed thoughts that we'll then recognize in Hebrews chapter 10. The first four verses, of, and maybe I should just stop long enough, you know, context is the key to everything, even in our communication with one another. If you catch a fragment of a statement that someone says without understanding the context, you can construe that in a way that is completely wrong. Many times it creates problems in relationships, in marriages, in families, and so on and so forth, because you find someone having to say, no, you misunderstood me. You didn't understand what I was saying. You missed the context in which that statement was being made. And we're told over and over again in our Bible colleges and seminar, seminaries that the key to biblical interpretation is context, context, context. And I always say those three are important because first it's the context of Scripture itself. Second, it's the context of scriptural history, which takes us back to the Old Testament. And third, it's the context of biblical culture. Without understanding the culture and the history, we miss many, many things. I think this is one of the things that was so brilliant about the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And at first I didn't like it when they had all of them speaking Aramaic. And yet that's the language that they spoke. Um, so it, it kind of puts us back into a, a framework of the kind of culture uh, that they were living in. And culture and language, of course, are always so closely related. So um, for the sake of context... Romans outline and you guys are really at a disadvantage. I don't know if I can turn this enough for you to see it. All of you have heard this before. Chapters 1 through 5 are dealing with the doctrine of justification. How can we enter into eternal life? What is required for us to become a child of God. Actually, that should be one through, 
No, that's right. One through five. And then chapter six through eight, we deal with the issue. Hey, I gotta back up. I told you I was jet lag. I'm proving it to you. Let's start all over again. Chapter one through three. Condemnation. Why are we under condemnation? Why do we need salvation? He deals with the fall of man. He deals with the uh, presence of sin in the world and the issue of evil. And you know, there are many people that say, I can't believe in God because of all the evil in the world. And they don't even realize that if they would think it through, the evil in the world is an absolute proof that God exists. Did you ever think about that? If God doesn't exist, what defines it as evil? If God doesn't exist, there is no evil. It's just happenstance. It's just chance. You can't really call it evil unless it's in contrast to that which is good. And if something's good, it can't be relative good. It has to be absolute good. And therefore, you're brought to the fact that there must be a God. Chapter 4 and 5 now, we get into justification. How do we enter into eternal life? Chapters 6 to 8, the issue of sanctification, and that is once we become a believer, how do we live the Christian life? You know, you can learn a lot about a Christian by asking them a simple question. Define spirituality for me. How do you define spirituality? And you'll find that most times they'll say something like, you don't drink, smoke, dance, go to movies, play cards, or whatever their particular brand of taboo happens to be. That's not spirituality. Anyone can do that. So here's a little indicator. If an unbeliever can do it, it can't be spirituality. Does that make sense? Spirituality is something supernatural. <clears throat> Spirituality is something that can only come from the Spirit of God. If you ask that question and someone says spirituality is when you are under the control of the Holy Spirit or when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, now we're talking about something miraculous that God is doing. And it has, it obviously affects the things that we do, but it's more concerned with the condition of the heart. So that's sanctification, or we could call that spiritual growth. Once we've come to Christ by faith, what's the purpose of our life on this earth? To grow in grace and truth. To be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. To become more and more like Him. To serve God and to bear fruit. All of those things are a part of what we call sanctification. Then we have those difficult chapters, 9 and 10, which many people, probably most people, will tell you, and I used to take this position, this is a parenthesis. And so that makes it easy to say, well, skip over Romans 9, 10, and 11. I said 9 and 10, 9 through 11. We'll skip over those because it's a parenthesis, and really the reason we're skipping over it is because it's difficult. What are they dealing with? They're dealing with the issue of dispensation. What do we mean by dispensation? We talk about dispensation, we're talking about the plan of God. 
Can you guys see this okay? We're talking about the plan of God. We begin the biblical story in eternity past. In the beginning, God. Then we have the unfolding of the story, looking forward to the eternal plan, eternity future, and right there in the center is the cross. And we refer to this as the age of Israel. We refer to this as the age of the church. And why are they different? And how are they different? And if the church is the focal point of Paul's writing, Romans chapter 8, wouldn't it be very logical in a chapter like Romans chapter 8 to say, wait a minute, Paul, you're telling us that God is faithful, that God's plan cannot fail, that we are victorious in Christ. What about Israel? Because God called them too. God made promises to them as well. If God's promises to Israel are not going to be fulfilled, how can we have the confidence and the trust that his promises to us are going to be fulfilled? So Paul says, I'm glad you asked that question. Romans chapter 9, he reviews Israel's past. Romans chapter 10, he deals with Israel in the present. They're rejecting Christ. Romans chapter 11, he deals with God's plan for Israel in the future. He's going to restore them ultimately as his people, and we call this dispensation. The word dispensation actually comes from the Greek word ekonomia. Sound like a word that you know? Ekonomia. Economy. Did you know that the word economy was a Greek word? Eco, well, we would say econ, eco. It comes from oikos, which means a household, like us here. We're in a household. The household, ekos plus namos. Namos means the law. So what does dispensation mean? It means the law of the household. What is the law of the household here? It's different than the law of the household here. Because the law of the household here was the law of Moses, and the law of the household here, as Paul's going to tell us, is the law of the spirit of life in Christ. I hope I'm not overloading you, but what I'm trying to do is get the context. So that when we look at Romans chapter 8, we'll understand why he's saying certain things that he's saying. And then finally... <clears throat> we have chapters 12 to 16, and they're all about transformation. In other words, if we are growing into the likeness of Christ, what's it going to look like? And he begins it, as you remember, in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, all of those things I've been telling you about in the first 11 chapters I want you to take those mercies to heart and let them transform your life. I beseech you that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's spirituality. That's what God wants to be a part of our life every day. Why should I go through all of this? You know, it's good advice, keep it simple, stupid, keep the KISS principle in place. But you know what, sometimes we need to challenge our thinking and we need to expand our vocabulary and our understanding and stretch ourselves a little bit because when I point you to Romans chapter 8, you would never know unless I had laid this out for you 
What's Paul talking about? We're not in the justification section. We're in the sanctification section. And why is that important? Because that's going to help us interpret Romans 8 verses 1 through 4. Okay? Before I go on, if I've thoroughly confused you, if, if it's as clear as mud, ask a question and I'll see if I can clear it up. Any questions? So sanctification, remember sanctification, justification takes place here. At a moment of time, a soul hears the gospel, the Spirit of God convicts them of sin, opens their eyes to its truth, they believe in it, and bang, they have just entered eternal life. But, what happens the next day? Well, we start that long upward journey from the cross to the crown. Am I going to live a worthy life, a fruitful life, a life of service, an effective life, or am I just going to take the gift and disregard the giver? Too many people do that. If I'm thankful for the gift, I want to honor the giver. I want the giver to know. We just sang about our last song, Give Thanks. Well, it's easy for me to say, thanks. But you know what? It's not easy to live thankfully. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Why? Because of all that he has done for me, should I not surrender my life to him? And really, sanctification begins when we humble ourselves before God and say, Father, your will be done. What do you want in my life today? And we're all going to fail. We're going to stumble. We stagger. We're children. Children have to learn. They have to grow. But he's gracious. He forgives us. He picks us up, dusts us off, washes us off, changes our diaper, and we start off again. Okay? You're going to see in just a moment why all of this is so important. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. I thought I'd get a lot further than this, but this is the way it goes. Read with me, Romans 8, 1. There is, therefore. Therefore, remember, is always there because it's bringing everything that's come before to a conclusion. Paul's reaching a great conclusion here. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm just going to stop right there because I want that truth to seep in. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have trusted God, Christ as your Savior, you have become a child of God, and when Christ died for your sins, He just didn't die for the ones that you committed in the past, he died for the sins you'll commit in the future. All sins, past, present, and future were laid on him at the cross. He paid the penalty for him, and when we trust him for that work, we receive total and complete forgiveness. The slate in our life is wiped clean. It's all erased. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. It's buried in the depths of the sea. 
their sins and iniquities, God says, I will remember only once in a while. Right? Their sins and iniquities, I will remember no more. Why? Because we received the payment that Christ made for them. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's read on and we'll come back. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. All men are sinners, all men die, and all men ultimately will stand before the judgment. We'll see in Hebrews, it is appointed unto a man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. We don't like to think about it. We try to shrug it off. We try to uh, distract ourselves, blind ourselves. But always in every human heart, there is that little tingle, that little twinge of conviction that says one day you're going to die. One day you're going to stand before your maker. Even the atheist has that, which is why they argue so hard that God doesn't exist because they're whistling in the dark trying to convince themselves. No, you can't avoid it. We will all stand accountable before the judgment seat of Christ. He says in verse 3, For what the law could not do, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. The problem was not the law of Moses. It's perfect. The problem is my ability to implement it. It was weak through the flesh, what it could not do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He sent him in the likeness, not the reality. Christ had no sin in him, but he sent him into this world in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. Why? So that he could condemn or judge sin in the flesh. In the person of Jesus Christ, God judged the sins of the world. Verse 4, that... The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All right, very quickly, what we have here are four great victories of the Christian life. You have them there in your notes, in bold, and the first is the victory of forgiveness for condemnation. Forgiveness of all sins, which delivers us from all condemnation. That forgiveness is available only through the person and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Secondly, we have the victory of life in the Spirit. In other words, the ability to live out the life of the Spirit of God as opposed to our previous condition, which was death under the law. See, the law can condemn you, but it can't save you. It's like a speed sign. It can tell you how fast you're supposed to go, but it can't put a monitor on your car and make you go that. If I'm driving along the highway and I'm doing 80 and it's the speed limit 60, that speed sign condemns me. That's what the law does. Thou shalt not. Why are so many of the commands negative? Because they all deal with the things that we do. We are all guilty. Each and every one of us have violated every single one of those commands. You say, oh no, I never committed adultery. I've never stolen. I've never committed murder. 
But what we don't realize is the law is not little bits and pieces of different commands. It is one unit. If you have all of the commands, and James tells us, if you only break one, you're guilty of violating all of them. How guilty is every member of the human race before God? Totally guilty. Completely and totally guilty before God. And that's why the old idea, good, good people go to heaven, not going to work. Well, I'm better than so-and-so. Well, so-and-so is not the standard. You know, I used to work in Cummins Prison in Arkansas when I was pastoring there. And every single prisoner that I spoke to, no matter what their crime was, they always said, well, at least I don't do this. You know, those guys down on that block, they're worse than me. But that's not the way God works. Violate one. You're guilty of having broken the law. So we have a wonderful victory over the death of the law in verse 2. And then we have the victory of the power of Christ over the impotence of the law. What the law could not do, Paul says, because it was weak through the flesh, it could not provide salvation. It could not provide spirituality. You know, a lot of people recognize the first, but they stumble on the second. For example, if I come under conviction that I am a sinner and I believe in Jesus Christ and I trust in his sacrifice on the cross in my behalf, what I'm saying is the law can't save me. I can't find salvation by trying to be good. I can't reform myself. I can't try to be better. It's not going to work. Only Christ can provide me salvation. But then here's the mistake many Christians make. Now I'm a Christian. I have to obey the law. You just defeated yourself because you don't have the power. That's what Romans 7 is all about. Paul says the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. The things I know I ought to do, I fail to do. He has this terrible inner struggle and he's just revealing to us the experience that every one of us goes through somewhere along the line in our Christian life and that is, I can't do it. I can't keep the law. I can't live up to God's standard. Why? Because we should have learned early in our Christian life, not only can the law not save you, it can't give you spirituality. It doesn't have the ability. The idea that just because I'm now a Christian, I have the ability to obey the law, true or not true, depending on whether you're depending on the indwelling Spirit of God, the life of Christ poured out in us through God the Holy Spirit. And in that, we keep the law not by saying, here's a command, I have to do it. We keep the command by saying, here is Christ, and I love him, and I humble myself before him and rely on his spirit, and we just go our way and the spirit guides us. We don't have to worry about all the do's and don'ts and rules and regulations because he'll never lead us astray. And then finally, we have the victory of spirituality over carnality. And this is the part that I want you to get, and I probably won't get too much beyond this, uh, except to quickly turn to Hebrews 10, and I'll point out a few things for you. Notice that he says there in verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law, righteous demands of the law of Moses, might be fulfilled in us, that is, in we who are believers, those of us who do not walk according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. That's the option before us every day. Am I going to walk in the Spirit? Am I going to walk in the flesh? Because we have to understand that within us, there are two natures. Every one of us is a Jekyll and Hyde. We have the new nature, that new creation. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And that new creation, which is indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, is incapable of sin. Did you know that? If you have trusted Christ for your salvation, there is a new man within you that can't sin. John talks about this. That which is born of God cannot sin. You ever read that one in 1 John? Cannot sin. Can't be touched by sin. I can illustrate it this way. Remember the old picture of the tabernacle and you have the outer court and you have the, uh, I won't go into all the articles, and then you have the tabernacle proper and this was the outer court, OC. This was the holy place, HP. And this was the H of H. Holy of holy. Did you know that as an unbeliever, you didn't have that? You have a body, that's the outer court. You have a soul, that's the holy place. But there's no holy of holies because we're spiritually dead. When we become a believer in Christ, God creates the new man and into who dwelt in the holy of holies? The Shekinah glory. What's the Shekinah glory? The presence of Jesus Christ. And therefore, in the believer, we will refer to this as the human spirit, which was dead, now is made alive. Holy Spirit dwells in there. Do you think that the Holy Spirit can dwell in a sinful place? We know it's not possible. And that's why God did an amazing spiritual work at the moment we were saved to create a place in us, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit that cannot be touched by sin. Do you know what God sees when He looks at you if you're a child of God? The very first thing He sees of you is that right there. He sees the righteousness of Christ. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 1, 6, we are accepted in the Beloved. What does that mean? That means that God accepts each and every one of us as if we were his own son. He receives us as being as righteous as Christ himself. Now, when sin enters in, and in the soul we have that other nature, which is the old sin nature. Do, do any of you doubt that you still have a sin nature? It's evident. We still have a sinful nature. So when he says in verse 4, if we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, now we are living out from the holy place that God created within us. But here's where things get interesting. That same phrase is at the end of verse 1. Now, I will honestly tell you that there's a lot of controversy about that because a lot of scholars say, 
That phrase does not belong in verse 1. It only belongs in verse 4. And there are reasons to accept that position. The uh, oldest manuscripts do not have that phrase at the end of verse 1. Uh, Aaron and I were just talking about discrepancies in the Greek manuscripts. We have more Greek manuscripts of the New Testament than any other work of history. The works of Homer, the works of uh, Plato, uh, we only have a few copies. We have 5,000 complete ancient copies of the New Testament in Greek. We have 20,000 fragments of the New Testament in Greek dating back to the first century. And the interesting thing is that just from letters alone that believers would write to each other, archaeologists have found that they can reconstruct the entire New Testament with the exception of 36 verses from the quotes of believers writing to each other, quoting verses to each other. If all of our Greek manuscripts were destroyed, all we have to have are letters of believers from the first century, and we can just reconstruct almost the entire New Testament. So the evidence is really overwhelming. But the point that I want us to get is this. The reason that that phrase is found, whether in verse 1 or verse 4, I'm not even going to enter into the controversy of it. It's there because it's crucial because we are not talking now about justification, we're talking about sanctification. And my friend, the moment that you and I trust in Jesus Christ, the question that faces us every single day, will I live by faith or will I live apart from faith? Will I live by the power of the Spirit or by my sinful nature? It's a moment-by-moment -moment question. And that's why Hebrews 10... Or, is so helpful because if you will turn, I was going to do a little turning back and forth to compare the sections, but I think you'll be able to see it if you go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And you've got this at the bottom of your page. The four victories that we see here. What about the victory of forgiveness over condemnation? Well, look at Hebrews 10, verses 16 to 18. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. And he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now where remission or forgiveness of these things is, there is no longer an offering for sin. We owe nothing. We owe nothing. We are free. There is no sacrifice, no offering, no great deed that we can do that is going to add to or aid or supplement our salvation by simple childlike faith. And of course, you can go back to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14 where he first introduces this idea and he tells us there, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What's he saying? The blood of Christ is all you need. The blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient. And then notice, the second victory is the power of Christ over the impotence of the law, and we have that in Hebrews 
10 verses 1 through 10, and I won't read the whole section, but you can pick up on it in just the first couple of verses. The law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of those things can never, with those same sacrifices that they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. And then if you just drop down to verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. The law is weak. But we have a victory over that. The power of Christ. The third victory, the power of the Holy Spirit over death under the law. He picks up on that in verses 11 to 18. And again, I won't read the whole thing, but he contrasts the priest that were serving in the tabernacle every day, offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And then he says in verse 12, but this man, Jesus Christ, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because his job was finished. Note verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are, notice the phrase, being sanctified. We're in the process of spiritual growth, the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we have the victory of spirituality over carnality, and that really becomes the issue in verse 19 when he starts telling us that we have a high priest, and that high priest represents us before God, and because of his representation of us, because he is our advocate, we can come boldly before the throne of grace, but it should mean something in our life. And that's where we find in verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider one another to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Christ in our life ought to mean something. And how does all that happen? Gratitude. Gratitude and humility. Humbling ourselves before the throne of grace, expressing our gratitude, our thankfulness for what he has done for us. We should dwell on, do you remember where you were as an unbeliever? I remember. I remember the fear. I remember any time anyone would mention the Bible, scripture, judgment, death. I remember that conviction, one day you're going to die. And you're not good enough to get into heaven. And you can't give an account to God for the life that you live without being condemned. If God judged me for only one sin, I have no grounds for delivering myself. But thank God there came that moment when the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ came through to my mind. You know what my thought was the first time I heard and understood the gospel? Only God could do something like that. Instead of do this, don't do this. Instead of rules and regulations. Instead of trying to sacrifice, agonize, and pray your way into heaven. God did all the work. And what does he ask of us? Simple childlike faith. Do you know why God honors faith above everything else? Ponder it for just a moment. Why is faith so valuable to God? I'll tell you why. 
It's the only thing that gives him all the glory. You know what faith is? Faith is an acknowledgement that I am helpless, hopeless, and condemned without Christ. Therefore, I can only receive eternal life as a free gift by his grace through faith. So you see a little bit of the parallels there. I hope you might want to take this paper through the week and just kind of read through those sections. And I think you'll see how Hebrews chapter 10, Romans chapter 8 are really dealing with the same issues. Um, and next week when we come back, we're going to wrap up chapter 10 and we are going to launch into the faith chapter. The heroes of the faith. Or as one man said, God's rogues gallery. Because you know what? The author was guided by the Spirit specifically to pick people that were example of those who stumbled, staggered, failed many times. And yet they're heroes of the faith. Why didn't he pick Daniel? Why didn't he pick Joseph? Why didn't he talk about some of the people that we have no record of any failure in their life? Because that would have caused you and I to say, I'll never measure up. But when I look at guys like David, guys like Noah, guys like Samson, yeah, they were just like me and you. And if they did it, so can we. So I hope that'll encourage you. I hope it came through, you know, to, uh, making sense. Uh, I'm, I'm still halfway. Whenever I travel around the world, I always feel like, Half of my soul is back there somewhere trying to catch up to me, yeah. you know. So hopefully it was uh, clear and uh, understandable. So let's pray, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. We'll be back. Question. Question. Where are all the Greek manuscripts kept? Uh, they're held in many, many different places. Yeah. Uh, some are in the Vatican li Library. Some are in the uh, British Museum of Natural History. Uh, a lot of them are held by various uh, religious organizations. You know, people buy and sell manuscripts. This was one of the big problems uh, in the early days of archaeology. People are finding manuscripts, and there was a phenomenal uh, market for uh, manuscripts and uh, various archaeological discoveries that were coming out of the Middle East. The nation of Israel actually had to uh, set up a special investigative board to keep people from selling relics and, and various things like that. It's actually a crime uh, to do that. But, yeah, they're, they're scattered all around. Uh, I was talking with Aaron again early uh, before class. Uh, if you're really interested in historical and archaeological uh, and other uh, evidences for scripture, I would encourage you to get Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Anyone that would look at the evidence that we have for the truth of scripture, and every time they stick a spade in the ground in Israel, up comes something of archaeological significance. And you know what? Not one archaeological discovery has ever disproved the Bible. As a matter of fact, archaeology keeps proving that the critics are wrong. So our case is very strong. Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell, evidence. 
Actually, he, he wrote the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict and then came out with a later one. I would encourage you to get that one. It says More Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and it's the first book expanded. Um, but My it, spouse is into archaeology, and uh, uh, he just, <laughs> his brain just works different than, than anybody's, so yeah. that would be a good book for him, but yeah. he's got questions, he always wants answers. <laughs> I mean, there are so many books that are of that category, but that's the one that, um, some of them, the guys are so brilliant that you just can't really follow sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm kind of a simple man, and uh, sometimes I read the arguments of guys, and I go, say what? Yeah. I go back and read it again, and I go, I'm not getting it. And I go back and read it again, and I love people that can just, what I really love are brilliant people that speak simply. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you one of the best. Greg Kukul. Two books. And I would recommend this one for everyone. The first one is Reality. It's a short read. You can read it. You can probably read the whole book in an hour, hour and a half. The subtitle on the book is what made me buy it. How the world began, how the world will end, and everything important in between. And I thought, that's kind of an arrogant statement. <laughs> and I got the book and read it and said, he hit it all. It's a book that's small. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a small little book. And then there's a second one that will really help your witness. And it's called Tactics. And he shows you how to deal with critics of the Bible uh, in a very non-threatening way. And it'll, make, it'll actually make witnessing easy for you. Because you don't try to uh, oppose the people. You don't try to uh, insert your position. You just ask them questions. Someone says, well, I don't believe the Bible. <clears throat> That's interesting. Why not? Well, we all know the Bible's full of fallacies. Really? <laughs> Can you show me one? Well, I don't know where they are, but there are a lot of them. <laughs> yeah? Uh, but you can't show many, right? No. And he basically just questions people until they back themselves into a corner. It's very, very interesting. So I would highly recommend those. All right. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your prayers while we were gone. They worked. They got us back home. They got us back in one piece, which yeah. there were a couple of times I wondered. Uh, we were going along a road. My son and I were going along a road in... Queensland and it's all steep steep mountains and wilderness and the road goes like this and we came around the curve and here are two huge rocks in the middle of the road and the other side of the road drops down to a river deep below so we stopped and we said let's see if my son's a really stout young fella so we said let's stop and see if we can get these out of the road because the people that live back in there I mean, they're stuck if they can't get out. There's, you know. So we start working and we're heaving and he, he picks up a rock about this big and moves it by himself. And then he and I together moved a big rock, but there was one we couldn't move. I mean, we could just not even budge this thing. And we see a Jeep coming down the road from the opposite direction. And Will said, the cavalry is here. <laughs> 
and I've got two women. And I turned and said, I don't think they're going to help us very much. But you know what? With just the added help of those two ladies, we moved that big stone. Wow. See ya. Good day. And down the road we went. So those rocks could have come down on top of us. So, all right, let's pray. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you love us so much. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the humility of stepping down from your throne in heaven to come into this world that is full of sin, sorrow, and suffering to take on a human body so that you could go to the cross in our place. Thank you for rescuing us from eternity in the lake of fire. Thank you, Spirit of God, for inspiring the writing of your word, for giving us the illumination to understand it, and then enabling us to be able to live it out in our life as we simply trust in you. I pray for each and every one who's here and those that couldn't be with us. Father, I pray that as we go through this week, we'll reflect on the challenge that faces us each and every day. Will I face this day and walk in the power of the Spirit, or am I going to choose self over Christ and walk in the power of the flesh? Help us, Father, to live victorious lives that will bring glory to you in the end. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.